What's up guys, welcome back to the MMA meeting, let's talk with the Weasel Podcast where we talk all things MMA and I hope you guys are having an awesome day. My day has been pretty interesting to say the least, I mean, it's very strange to see myself getting quoted or shot out by fighters and other sports networks. For those who don't know, RT Sports, which is one of the main Russian sports networks over there in their country, has quoted me about Armin Saryukin, the breakdown that I made about him actually went up on their pages. And I am absolutely grateful for that. That is so crazy to me. And recently, I just got shot out by Michael Page about my breakdown on his fight with Douglas Lima. And that is absolutely insane. It's hard for me to grasp that, to be honest. Whenever it happens, whenever a fighter or a coach shouts out my content or even see them mention things that I've said in my breakdowns, like they use some of the same terminology and stuff at times, it just blows my mind every time I see or hear it, whether it be Rose Namajunas back in the day sharing my breakdown of her and Michelle Watterson, Josie Eldo sharing my video on him, Nick Diaz subscribing, Corey Mazdal mentioning my breakdown, Faraz Hobby giving me a shout out and watching one of my videos on his podcast, Henry Cejudo's call shouting out my breakdown, like every single time this happens, it just doesn't seem real to me. Because whenever I make videos, I make it purely for you guys and also for my enjoyment. That's pretty much it. I love making breakdowns and it sometimes escapes me when I make it for you guys. You guys can also mean the fighters I'm talking about. And that never enters my mind when I make a video. Because I see myself as one of you guys, like the viewers. Like, that was me not too long ago. Five years ago, I was watching all MMA content. I was commenting in a bunch of videos, sharing my thoughts, and becoming part of the community. And I still kind of have that same mindset. Yes, I've trained for a very long time and I can see things in fights that maybe others don't see. And that's ultimately how I started my YouTube channel, right? With Amanda Nunes and Ronda Rousey breakdown. For an example, I was seeing a bunch of different analysts and personalities in the sport talk about the fight, but they weren't seeing exactly what I saw. So I made my breakdown and it kind of exploded. And from there, it just became a regular thing. And I just had more and more fun with it, getting as creative as possible, using the skills that I've developed for, what, the past 12 years and editing programs and all that stuff. I've been editing videos for 12 to 13 years so far. So I was able to apply that as well. So that's all I still see myself as. One of you guys that just talks about MMA. That's why I love making these podcasts. I love making these breakdowns and communicating with you guys, trying to create a discussion and just make it fun. So that's where my head has been at recently, just trying to fathom that my favorite fighters and the guys I watch all the time, and they're now talking about what I'm saying. Like, it's crazy. I'm not going to try to think about it. But what else is going on here is, did you guys know UFC 267 and UFC 268 are within a week of each other? Yeah, the two biggest cards of the year are happening back to back in a week of each other. That is crazy. Let's look at those cards, man, because I don't think people understand how exciting that is. So UFC 267, we'll start from the bottom to the top. So Demir Ismagulov versus Magomed Mustafaev and the prelims is an excellent fight. Makwan Amirakani versus Lauren Murphy is pretty good. Ricardo Hamosh versus Zubara Tukugov, that's an interesting fight. Amanda Ribas versus Verna, that's a good fight as well. And the main card is just fire all over the place. Magomed Uncle Live versus Volkan Uzdemir. That's an insane fight. Two great strikers in that light heavyweight division. And it's Uncle Live's opportunity to get himself to the top of those rankings, man. I think he might be the guy who will be the champion once he faces Jan Blahovic, whoever the champion is going to be. I find it very hard for anybody to beat Uncle Live. Then we have Li Jing Liang versus Hamza Shamayev. The return of possibly, who a lot of people are thinking is going to be one of the biggest stars in the sport, one of the most dominating forces in the sport, Hamza Shamayev, in only only his fourth UFC fight, he's fighting a top 15 opponent, and Li Jing Liang is legit. 
The guy's powerful. He's very dangerous in the striking. He's a veteran, well-rounded fighter, and it's definitely going to test Hamza on a different kind of level. I also want to touch base again about Hamza and his potential stardom after I talk about these cards, because there seems to be a little bit of debate as to who is going to be the most likely future star. And after that fight, we got Alexander Volkovers Marchant Tibor. That's an interesting fight. I would say on the lower end of what we have on that main card. And then we burn the boats as Dan Hooker steps in on short notice to take on Islam Makashev in enemy territory. In my opinion, better fight than Makashev versus RDA because we all know RDA does not like those wrestlers. Whereas Dan Hooker is a lot more dangerous. He'll fight off of his back. He has those intercepting shots on takedowns. And it's a higher ranked opponent for Makashev to fight. Makashev, I believe, is number five and Hooker is number six. So even Makashev is going to be liking this fight as well. I cannot wait to see how that one goes down. Popular belief is that Makashev is going to dominate Hooker with probably some fits here and there. But Hooker has said that he's getting paid more for this fight. He's getting bonus money. But he does have a limited amount of time to prepare for this style. Because remember, he just came off a fight against Nazra Hakparas, who is completely different to Islam Makashev. So can't wait to see that one. And then the co-main event after that is Piotr Jan versus Corey Sanhagen. Say what you want by Aljamain Sterling. He might be the second best fighter in this division or third. The way his fight with Piotr Jan went has created a false image on how great Aljamain Sterling actually is. Sterling is actually one of the best fighters in the bantamweight division. And people seem to forget about that. But at the same time, I think Jan versus Sanhagen's a better fight. Sanhagen at least has the physical attributes to create some kind of physical hurdle for Piotr Jan to go through. It's something that Jan hasn't really fought up against. A guy who's 5'11", that long and that quick and that powerful. All together like that, Corey Sanhagen is a puzzle to solve. He's also extremely tricky when it comes to the stand-up. And his takedown defense has gotten better stemming off of his TJ Dillashaw fight. If he could defend Piotr Jan's takedowns, this one is going to be extremely interesting how it plays out on the feet. Can't wait to see that one. I think it's a better fight than the Sterling one. And even though it's an interim title fight, we're really looking at this as it's the undisputed title. I mean, Putreon is the best fighter in this division. He deserves to be the champion. In a way, he did commit the foul, got his belt taken away from him, but caliber-wise... Jan is number one. Sterling is like number two, and then TJ, and then Corey, and then probably Rob Font, and then Jose Aldo. And then the main event is Jan Blachowicz versus Glover Tashira. I do like the fight. Some people are kind of down on it. They see it as an older guy that Jan is probably going to blow through, but do not sleep on Glover Tashira. If there is a weakness about Jan Blachowicz that hasn't been exploited in some time, it is his takedown defense. When's the last time Jan has fought a wrestler, or at least someone who has good takedowns that attempted on him? Corey Anderson struck with him. Jacques shot in a lot of takedowns, but Jacques is a lot smaller. I mean, the difference between middleweight and light heavyweight is huge. And that showed against Israel Adesanya. It also showed against Jacare Souza. They don't have the same kind of strength and the power to deal with those light heavyweights like that. But it is a guy who has decent takedowns that shot in on Jan. Luke Rockhold, but Luke is not known for his wrestling offense. He's really good on top, but he doesn't have the best means of getting it to the ground. And also, he is a middleweight going up to light heavyweight. He was overblown. Not the same kind of guy. Nikita Krylov took him to the ground. Devin Clark shot in a couple times, but not much. And then if we go back all the way to Petra Cummins, and also Alexander Gustafsson, and Corey Sandig in the first time they fought, they all took him down multiple times. And it wasn't even difficult for them. That was a long time ago. But that's the main question going into this. How good is Jan's takedown defense? Glover is the guy that could potentially exploit if there's still a weakness lingering there. That's why this fight, I think, is a lot more interesting. Because if Glover can take down Blahovich, Blahovich is going to be in some trouble. So that is UFC 267. That's a great card, man. A week later, we got UFC 268. As great as 267 was, 
268 is even better. We got Emma Shabazian versus Nazardin Imovov. That's a great fight, man. That one's going to be extremely exciting. Shane Burgos versus Billy Quarantillo. Can't wait for that one. Billy is a legit prospect of the featherweight division, and he's always exciting in the cage. He's known as a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy, but he's been really putting his hands on his opponents lately, and we all know how Shane Burgos operates. He's in there for a war. That's going to be an excellent fight. Eli Quinta versus Bobby Green after the fight of the veterans. And then we got the debut of Alex Pereira versus an opponent that the UFC carefully picked out. A striker for the most part who is a little bit wild on the feet at times. He will attempt takedowns for sure, but it is a good debut opponent for Pereira. I cannot wait for that guy's debut, man. One of the best strikers in the world for sure. Then we got Frankie Edgar versus Marlon Vera. Frankie's coming off that knockout loss to Corey Sanhagen, and yes, it did happen eight months ago. It was a flush knockout, and Edgar was out for a bit. I don't know if eight months is enough. I mean, because when you think about it, he's had, what, two months of a training camp? And we know that Frankie and those guys spar hard, so six months with no contact, if that's what he did, let's just say for argument's sake. I don't know if that's enough, man, but it is a good opportunity for Marlon Vera for sure. After that... The two guys everybody hates, but they love to see them fight. The American Michael Bisming, Sean Strickland versus Luke Rockhold. And these two guys have a problem with each other. Definitely going to be a fun one, man. And this is Luke Rockhold's first fight ever since he got knocked out by Jan Blachowicz, which was two and a half years ago. He hasn't fought in two and a half years. And Sean Strickland, the guy has been fighting a lot more consistently. I mean, this is going to be his third fight of the year. And he's coming off a five win streak. And the way he fights, he doesn't get out of your face. He just throws punches at you the whole time. And then we got to the banger. One of the best fights of the year, in my opinion. One of the most explosive fights of the lightweight division's history. Justin Gaethje versus Michael Chandler. Someone is getting knocked out. Or submitted, possibly. Someone's getting finished. That's 100% what's going to happen here. It should be a five-rounder, but I don't know if we're going to need five rounds. And they're two guys who don't really like each other that much. Especially Gaethje, man. Gaethje does not like Chandler. He doesn't like the opportunities that Chandler's been given. I don't know if it's based off jealousy or just finding a way to hate this guy. Personally, I think Chandler just took the opportunities that the UFC gave him. And anybody in his situation would do the same. But man, two of the most powerful fighters the lightweight division has ever seen going toe-to-toe with each other on a grand stage like UFC 268. That's such an insane fight. And it doesn't end there. The strawweight championship fight between Rose Namajunas and Zhang Wei Li, that is still going to be a fun fight to watch. Two of the most powerful fighters in that division, two fighters who go for the finish, and... We're all going to see, are those excuses going to weigh on Jean Wiley's performance? Or is she going to show up better than ever before? Because you also have to know, that was her first loss ever since her MMA debut back in 2013. Right, She was on a 21 win streak before getting knocked out horrendously in the first round by Rose. Rose is coming in there with an all-time high, but on Rose's end is the weight of the championship of the media requirements. Are those going to weigh on her like it did last time? We have no idea. This rematch, I believe, is a lot more interesting than the first fight. And 100%, the winner fights Carla Esparza. Esparza deserves a title shot. And then the main event. One of the best fights of 2019, redone in 2021. Kamar Usman versus Colby Covington, clearly the two best guys in the welterweight division. One and two. Everybody else is after. Colby looked a lot better against Tyron Woodley, and Usman is getting better every time we see him, specifically in his boxing. Has Colby found a way to not get hit by that big right hand and find ways to catch Usman with his volume striking? We know both guys are not going to gas off for five rounds, so we're in for a treat. It's pedal to the metal the whole way through for both guys and they do not like each other big grudge match and now they both know how great each other are there's no underrating the opponent or anything coming into this one they understand everything involved in this fight now can't wait for it man and that is ufc 268 so those are the two cards that are back to back within a week 
And I believe, and I believe at least for the United States, that the UFC 267 card is free. So the Blahovich and Teixeira card, I believe is free. But I'm going to have to double check on that. Everybody else, I mean, I know all you guys over there in Australia don't get it for free and also not the best time slot. I feel for you guys, man. I really do. But amazing fights. Cannot wait for them. And the thing I want to touch on about Hamza Shemaev and his star power in the sport. So there was a big debate going on as to who is going to be potentially the biggest star in the sport out of Hamza Shemaev, Sean O'Malley, or Paddy Pimblett. A lot of people seem to think it's either Sean O'Malley or Paddy Pimblett because they have an interesting personality and they know how to use the mic. And it could be true, possibly. Paddy Pimblett or Sean O'Malley could possibly be one of the biggest stars in the sport in the future. And what I will say is, potentially, if everything goes perfect, let's say all three of these guys become the champion of their divisions and they never lose. I believe Paddy Pimblett has the potential to be the biggest star out of these three fighters. But as it stands... I honestly think Hamza Shemaev has the best chance of becoming the bigger star here. Because number one, it looks like right now on paper, he has the best skills of actually entering into a top 15 and beating most of those opponents. If Sean O'Malley goes in the top 15, he could beat some of them for sure. But there's a lot of guys that are going to give him fits. Paddy Bimblett, same thing. And Paddy is in the hardest division in the UFC, man. So it's definitely not going to favor his chances moving forward, especially if he's fighting the way he's been fighting. Hamza Shamaev has that unique wrestling style that's going to cause a lot of opponents to fall under his game. And he's powerful with his hands, he's fast with his hands, and he's a huge welterweight. So skill-wise, it looks like Hamzat has the best chance in that area to become a champion out of the three fighters. Number two, if you look at social media following and you look at the, the traffic to their fights, Hamza Shamaev is the biggest fighter right now, right? He's the most followed fighter on social media. When he had that early run in the UFC, nothing that Sean O'Malley and Paddy Pimblett did created more of a buzz around the world. Because remember, we're talking about globally here, not just in certain countries. We got to count the whole world when we're talking about global star power here. And let's compare some of the following numbers. So Sean O'Malley has 1.9 million followers on Instagram and 323,000 on Twitter. You also have to note that Twitter is mostly used in the United States. Most of the world does not use Twitter, but most of the world does use Instagram. Now we look at Hamza Shemaev, he has 2.6 million followers on Instagram, almost a million more than Sean O'Malley. And on Twitter, even though it's not that big over there in Sweden and Russia and all those other places that he's big in, he has 146,000 followers. And also you have to note, he has not fought as many times as Sean O'Malley has. He's not been in the UFC as long as O'Malley has. And he's already bigger on social media. Now we look at Paddy Pimblett. He doesn't have an Instagram, but he does have a Twitter. And again, it's not that big over there in the UK. But he still has 159,000 followers. So out of the three fighters, we know that Hamza Shemaev has the most social media following. Therefore, I argue that Hamza Shemaev has the best chance of becoming the next big superstar out of these three fighters. The only thing I believe that's going to hinder his pursuit is COVID. If he does not return the same way, that would be a bummer. But right now, that seems like the only thing that can stop him in his tracks. Because you have to remember, the guy has not fought for a while. And when we look at Sean O'Malley, he's already lost. He's already got knocked out in a fight. And even the one against Chris Moutinho, he wasn't even the big thing coming out of that fight. It was about how durable Chris Moutinho was. Everybody was expecting Sean O'Malley to finish this guy horrendously, but it didn't happen. Chris Moutinho's chin was trending all over the place. Now, the thing about Patty Pimblett is, He's only had one fight in the UFC, and he had a very entertaining performance. If Paddy Pimblett cannot lose, and let's say he goes all the way up, becomes a champion, I believe he has more star power than Sean O'Malley, for sure. I think if all three of these guys become a champion, Paddy Pimblett might be the biggest star. I think he could even be bigger than Hamza. I think Hamza is number two, and I think Sean O'Malley would be number three. 
But the best chance of one of these guys going up and becoming a champion, I believe it is Shamayev. Pimblet has the hardest road, in my opinion, to become a champion. In the lightweight division and the way he fights, he's not as methodical as Sean O'Malley and Hamza are. He seems to invite wars more than those two guys do. He runs the risk of only becoming a fun fighter in the UFC instead of a high caliber fighter. And I hope that's not the case. I hope the guy does very well. But that's how I see this going. Well, let's go right to the questions after that. Oh, actually, no, I just saw something. Deontay Wilder's coming in with another suit for the Tyson Fury fight. I'm not gonna lie, it looks sick. It actually looks really cool. I mean, it has like laser beams coming out of it. But there's the built-in excuse. They better have a very short, short ramp going to the ring. The entrances must be like five seconds for him not to create that excuse again. Let's go right to the questions here. Five questions from patron, five questions from members, and then we go right into a bunch of the public questions. First one by Ronan Griffin. Hey, Weasel, Volk said that he might move up to 155. How would he do against the top 10? And how would he beat Henry Cejudo if they ever fought? Love the vids once again. Thank you so much, man. Yeah, he was mentioning about going up to 155 because he wants an opponent as soon as possible because City Kickboxing moving to the United States, man. So let's look at the top 10 of the lightweight division. I'm going to go through this very quickly. So what we also have to know here is Alexander Volkanovsky is not a small guy. He can really get up there and wait. The guy used to fight at middleweight and welterweight. Remember that. Middleweight and welterweight. I kid you not. So he can really get heavy if he wants to go up to lightweight. It looks like he can fluctuate whatever way he wants to be. The guy needs to be like, what, 400 pounds at one point. So I think he beats Gregor Gillespie. I think he beats Conor McGregor, beats RDA through wrestling, destroys this version of Tony Ferguson, beats Dan Hooker in my opinion. That fight can actually be extremely dangerous. I think he loses to Islam Makhachev. I think he beats Michael Chandler. I think he's too smart in there. Draw a bunch of those right hands with feints and catch him. And it's possible that Volkanovski has a lot more power at lightweight. But Neil Dariush, that's a fun fight. Very difficult for Volkanovski. But I'm going to slightly lean to his side. I think he loses to Justin Gaethje, but that's a competitive fight. Dustin Poirier. Ooh, that's a competitive one. That's a tight fight. You know what? I'm going to go with Volkanovski in this one. The lack of footwork and kicks is really going to hurt Poirier in that one. And then Charles Oliveira. I'm going to go with Oliveira in this one. He has the footwork. He has the range. He's very sharp with his punches and kicks. Good takedowns. The only thing that I'm really questioning is Oliveira's cardio. But I'll go Oliveira's side. And then how would he beat Henry Cejudo? It all comes down to can he defend the takedowns? Because his stance is naturally going to give up one of his legs. His feints are also going to trigger takedowns. I don't know if he has the footwork fast enough to get away from Cejudo specifically. Cejudo is extremely quick. For an example, Alexander Volkanovsky and a lot of those guys that sit kickboxing, they like to fake, as an orthodox fighter, the right leg kick. They bring their right hip forward and against a wrestler like Cejudo, if he finds that opening, he could blast a double leg right through him. Because that's naturally giving up your hips to the wrestler. He does that a lot. Volkanovski does that multiple times in a fight. Every single one. But honestly, it is kind of hard to analyze exactly what Volkanovski is going to have to do against a guy who's shorter than he is. Right? That's the first time for him. Volkanovski is usually used to fighting longer guys. I don't know how he's going to fight a shorter guy. I don't know what he's necessarily going to do. Because he's never had to deal with that before. For an example, I guess Chad Mendez, who was his size, just went after him. He didn't play with a lot of the feints. He didn't play distance fighting, even though he had the reach advantage. And maybe that's how he fights Cejudo as well. Just overpower him in the exchanges and try to bully him out there. That might be the main way he goes and beats him. There's many things he could do that's different. He could use the reach, move in and out on Cejudo, faint with the hands, get a reaction, counter, attack a lot with the long jab, look for right uppercuts, which is a weapon that Volkanovski does not use in fights that often. Going to be a lot of check left hooks as Cejudo comes down that straight line because Cejudo usually fights on a linear path. A lot of check left hooks and a lot of jabs are going to intercept a lot of what Cejudo does. And then we go to Jesse Griffin. What's the best way to judge around like the third round of Volkanovski versus Ortega? Alexander was pretty dominant and ended 
landed in a good position, but he almost got finished twice. The triangle was as close to ending the fight as Alex was at the end of the round, maybe even closer. It was about as close to ending a fight as anyone has ever been without actually ending it. Yeah, it didn't only happen once, man. That guillotine almost ended the fight. The triangle was deep in there. And according to the scoring criteria under effective grappling, the closer you are to finishing the fight, the harder it is for the opponent to take the round from you. But what goes against it is Volkanovski almost finished Ortega at the end of the third round. I mean, the fact that Ortega was laying on the ground in this corner to help him up pretty much showed you that Ortega was spent. He was pretty much done. So it is kind of comparable to the guillotine that Ortega had on Volkanovski. There's also the triangle choke as well as the guillotine. It almost happened twice, a fight ending sequence. So this is actually a very good question because you can see in a couple different ways here. I can see a way that people score for Ortega due to the fact that he almost finished Volkanovski twice. But that goes to see for Volkanovski because he also almost finished Ortega. But domination doesn't matter when you're almost finishing a fight. So if I'm going to be honest here, I might score for Ortega. Even though it's very close, it's extremely close to call. He almost finished Volkanovski twice. I mean, that's like the equivalent of knocking your opponent down twice and almost finishing them on the ground. So let's say in this round, Fighter A is dominating Fighter B. Like, he's not dropping them or rocking them and stuff, but he's hitting them with some hard shots, right? And then Fighter B, all of a sudden, in the middle of the round, drops Fighter A. Goes down, ground upon shots, almost finishes off the fight, but Fighter A is able to get out of it, scramble out, stand up, only for Fighter B again to drop them, but not as bad as before. They don't get the ground upon shots in there. He drops them, Fighter A stands up again, and now Fighter A drops Fighter B, a lot of ground upon shots, and it ends the round with that. I would have to give it to Fighter B. He almost finished you twice. So yeah, I think you would have to score for Ortega. Great question. And then we go to Isaac Jimenez. Hello, Mr. Weasel. How does someone practice MMA wrestling versus wrestling because on paper Colby D1 should be a better wrestler than Usman D2 but Usman is considered to be a better wrestler does it have to do with ground and pound or just top control in general it's ground and pound top control it's the cage is striking involved with it as well and that's why Usman is considered the better wrestler on paper for MMA because here's the difference with the wrestling style Colby shoots double legs and single legs from a distance he doesn't use the cage as much as Usman does Usman likes to drive you to the cage clinch you taking down from there and almost Habib you in ways, right? He lands horrendous ground upon. He's much better at ground upon than Colby is. He could be better at holding top control in certain positions. Also, he's shown to have so far the better takedown defense. Colby has been taken down by RDA, which is not the greatest thing to see for Colby's skills. That is why Usman is considered the better wrestler. There's different things in MMA wrestling than amateur wrestling. And then we're going to Hydra OG. What does Volkanovski have to do to be above Max Holloway on the featherweight GOAT list? He's right there. I believe if Volkanovski wins one more time, you can argue he's greater than Holloway. One more title defense and he ties Holloway's. Now Holloway has more championship wins, but he's also lost, right? He lost twice to Volkanovski, lost a counter back in the day, Bermuda's back in the day, and Poirier back in the day. Volkanovski has never lost in the featherweight division ever. If you look at the competition beaten, which is the most important thing about discussing who is the greatest of all time, they are very close, but I think you have to give an edge to Holloway for beating Cub Swanson, where Carl Lamas, Anthony Pettis, I guess, Josie Aldo in his prime, and then beat him in a rematch, beat Brian Ortega, then Frankie Edgar, then Kelvin Cater. You compare it to Alexander Volkanovski, but you have to also add add a next opponent because we're talking about if Volkanovski wins another fight which will most likely also be against Holloway so beating Holloway three times beating Ortega Aldo Mendez and Elkins ah that's a tough one to call then because Holloway has beaten more good fighters whereas Volkanovski has beaten more great fighters 
Like if you put him into a tier, you group them up in terms of the caliber. So if you were to look at Max Holloway's greatest wins, Jalzy Aldo twice, probably Brian Ortega and Frankie Edgar are the top guys. Does that compare to Max Holloway three times, Jose Aldo, Chad Mendes, and Brian Ortega? No. So that is the main reason as to why I would edge Volkanovski just above Holloway. The competition overall is very comparable. They both defended the belt three times each. And the main thing is Volkanovski has not lost in the featherweight division, whereas Max Holloway would lose six times, three of those to Volkanovski. And then your next question, do you think Darren Till should move down to 170 again? Man, that's a tough question because when he was down there at 170, he was like killing himself. Remember when he went blind cutting weight? He's in a tough position. If there was a 175 weight class, he'd probably go down there. But 170 seems to be too big of a cut for him. So be a middleweight because at least you're not killing yourself in the weight cut. But in terms of how well he can do, I think he's a better 170-er than he is a 185. But just health-wise, 185 is healthier in a way. I know some people say, but they're bigger guys there and they can hurt them more. There's more brain damage at 185. That's true, but there's also going to be a lot of brain damage at 170 after cutting all that weight. And then your next question, people are saying prime featherweight Connor beats Volkanovski. Do you agree? No, I do not. The wrestling's a threat. The power is always going to be a threat. The feints that Connor's never had to deal with before. Volkanovski is also deceptively long. He can pull a lot of those left hands out of there just to counter them. And a lot of leg kicks are going to land in that one. The feints are going to set up leg kicks. They're going to set up counter shots. They're going to set up right hands. His right overhand is going to be very hard for Connor to counter as well as get away from. So I'm going to have to say Volkanovski beats a prime featherweight Connor McGregor. And then I'm going to skip your last question because it would take a lot of time out of this. So I'm going to go to the next one. RSPCT. Hey Weasel, considering the unfortunate end to Nick's last fight, I was wondering if you can pull. I was wondering if you can post a good top five Nick Diaz career moments for some of the newer fans. So I'm only going to cover the first question here. So top five Nick Diaz career moments. We're only going to be talking about fights, right? Because he had a lot of great interviews and stuff that can really change someone's perspective of fighters. So number one, Paul Daly fight. Probably the greatest first round I've ever seen in my life. The rematch against KJ Noons is an excellent fight to show the progression of Nick Diaz's skills. From the first fight where he was getting battered a bit to beating KJ Noons the way he did, it was great to see Diaz evolve like that. Of course. The Takanori Gomi fight at Pride 33. He got one of the only Gogo Platas in MMA history on one of the greatest lightweights at the time. They said his levels were so high for marijuana that he had to have been high in the fight itself. I will say his rematches against Jeremy Jackson are also great fights to watch early in his career. That was right before the Robbie Lawler fight. Those are great fights to watch as well. The Robbie Lawler knockout was great. The Car Parisian fight was excellent. The Josh Neer fight was excellent. And the Wittek Kakashi of New Jersey. How do you see the UFC popularity growing in the next 10 years? I'm pretty new to the channel, but you're the best MMA channel. Thank you so much, man. So the UFC popularity in 10 years is probably going to be massive. It'll draw a lot of money to all of his fights, and the fighters are going to be pretty different. Hopefully a union happens by that time, but the fighters are definitely going to be making a lot more money than they are today. Not only from the UFC specifically, but they're going to be drawing more audiences and more fans from other platforms into their fights. That's why I foresee for sure. I think fighters are going to be starting like YouTube channels, Instagram accounts, and all the different kind of stuff in order to garner a bunch of fans before they actually step into their fights in the UFC. So all their fights from the beginning are going to be huge. And because of that, they're going to have to be making a lot more money. Sponsors coming back would be amazing, right? Individual sponsors for the fighters. And also the skills of the fighters are going to be dramatically improved. The techniques we see today and the fighters we see today are going to be laughable when you watch the fighters in 10 years. 
And they go to Arik Rayford. Am I losing my chin? So back in June around 2pm, I was sparring and getting tired and I was dehydrated so I decided to pull a Justin Gaethje and block punches with my face. I caught three hooks to the chin and felt fine. I could feel my brain moving to my skull though. So I felt fine up until 11pm at work when I got a weird feeling in the head. Went home and slept, woke up the next day with a bad migraine. Light sensitive and craving for fish oil and lots of water but still had a ton of energy to do stuff. Probably from my ADD. I slept all day then went to the doctor the next day and I was told I had a mild concussion. Yeah, that's what it seemed like. But it seemed to be a lot better than most who are concussed. After a three-hour nap, all symptoms disappeared. I take two weeks off from all exercising. After that, to be safe and haven't sparred since June 29th of the incident. So in the past, I've been known to have an iron chin, been hit ridiculously hard, and that was nowhere near the hardest. I've never been rocked or wobbled, even with this concussion. Should I be worried in the future, and how should I proceed? Yes, okay. Chins do not matter for the long haul. They only matter for specific moments. A hard chin could be cracked, and you could be suffering concussions all over the place. Because remember this. You don't have to be knocked out or rocked to get in concussion. There's something called micro-concussions, where just repeated blows to the head can cause mild brain damage. And when that keeps happening, your quote-unquote chin gets worse. Your brain takes even more damage and it reacts in a way where it doesn't want to take it anymore and shuts off. So even though you were known for a hard chin before, it looks like you've been taking shots for a long time. Your chin just continuously gets cracked every single time to the point where it just shatters. And that's going to be the worst part where you can't take a shot anymore. Like I always say, you never want anybody to know that you have a hard chin. Because that only means that you've been getting hit. Now what I will say is, I don't think your chin is done. Like I still think you're going to be able to take a lot of shots because as you were saying you were tired and dehydrated if you're tired and dehydrated take a break from sparring you don't have to be in there remember sparring is for you if you want to spar you can spar but you can quit at any given moment like if you don't feel good do not spar anymore just step to the sideline be like hey man I don't feel so good. Step in the back or something and just recover because this is your health. This is your brain. Don't take shots in sparring when you don't need to be taking the shots, especially when you're compromised because you're not winning anything through this. Save that for a fight if you're competing. If you're not competing, you shouldn't really be hard sparring in general. But yeah, what I will say is just take it easy, man. If you suffer a mild concussion, of course, just listen to your doctor. And the amount of time he tells you to take off, take the maximum length off. You want to make sure, man, you don't want to mess around with your brain. You want to mess around with your health. So my advice and my opinion, what I will say is it's been five months. I'll say just lay off the sparring a little bit more, maybe, but you could do everything else in like full blast, right? If you want to work out, lift weights, you could do all that. If you want to hit mitts, you want to drill techniques and stuff. You could do all of that. And even light sparring, light sparring, go ahead. Medium sparring, you could even dabble into, but don't go into hard sparring right now. That's my advice. Then we go to Diego Stork. Hey Weasel, so I've been thinking about the rematch between Kamaru Usman and Colby Covington and the repercussions of Colby winning. How do you think the landscape of the UFC would change if one of the biggest heels in MMA history wins a world title? Would that boost the sales because anyone would want to see him lose? Or would it hurt the UFC because he's just that hated? Love the videos, I need more podcasts though. I'm trying man, I have so much on my plate, but Colby being the champion would do wonders for the UFC. If he beats Usman and let's say he dominates and just lives up to that character every single time, trash talking, becomes as hated as possible, the UFC would love it. They would absolutely love it. As long as he doesn't say anything too crazy that can draw a bad eye on the sport, on the organization specifically, I think they're perfectly fine with Colby doing what he wants. People would want to see him lose. If he goes out there, beats Usman, and dominates the division, similar to the way Usman did, not with the knockouts and stuff, but just beating opponents and just bragging to everyone's face, hey man, you wanted this guy to beat me? I just dominated him. He had 
nothing for me. If he just goes on that kind of route, he'd be a bigger star than Usman was. He'd be a legit star in the sport that people are all going to want to watch. And he's not the first heel, right? When Chael would trash talk, he was mostly worse than Colby. Colby has said something such as the previous Black Zillion's owner, right? Stuff went over the line. But for the most part, Chael was usually more egregious than Colby is right? Tito Ortiz is also extremely hated, but that drew a lot of numbers. Chael drew a lot of numbers as well. Colby will do the same, but probably on another level. And then with the Artem MMA analysis, is Holloway versus Volkanovski the biggest and most anticipated trilogy of modern MMA? No, it's not the biggest and most anticipated. The biggest and most anticipated was Dustin versus Conor, obviously, right? Because Conor was a part of it. But I know what you're trying to say here. Biggest and most anticipated probably among hardcore fans. I would say Holloway and Volkanovski probably takes it. And the crazy thing about it is, Volkanovski has won two of the fights so far. And is still extremely anticipated because they are clearly the two best guys in the featherweight division right now. Not only that, they're two of the greatest fighters in the entire UFC. A contender and the champion should be pound for pound top seven of the UFC right now. They're such good fighters. That's the main thing. It's not so much the storyline or a rivalry or anything like that. It's just how competitive they are with each other. That's why it's probably the most anticipated trilogy of modern MMA. And then we finally go to EHMT1. What are your thoughts on, say, kickboxing moving to the United States? If they do, how will they impact the MMA landscape? They're going to be huge in the United States because they are one of the best camps of the entire world. Look at the guys that they have produced. Israel Adesanya, Dan Hooker. Alexander Volkanovsky, Brad Riddell, Jamie Malarkey is now doing very well, and the coaches are just fantastic. And what they bring to the sport is something most camps don't bring, the art of fainting. That is the best gym when it comes to mixing up feints with their striking and their wrestling. And I can only see them opening multiple schools in the United States if that's what they want to do. There's going to be a lot more talent from around the world to come into the United States and just to train with these guys. The whole lockdown over there in Australia and New Zealand is just not doing it for this gym. People can't fly over there and be happy about it, you know? So they come to the United States. People are going to be flying here, train with them. The Americans are going to be training with them. A lot of people are going to dabble there, even if they're not a part of that camp. Just to learn some different kind of things, so it will definitely impact MMA landscape. And then we go to the public questions. The first one by Dimitri Grushin. If fighters can prepare for specific opponents, but were just given a date, then how do you think it would affect fighters like John Jones, who are really good at game planning? Or Conor McGregor versus Jose Aldo, where there be different champions, and who would be the most dominant if this was put in place? and who would suffer the most. Thanks and love your content. That's a very interesting question. Yeah, John Jones would definitely, definitely suffer under those circumstances. If you look at him, man, he didn't perform that well against OSP. He didn't have much time to prepare for it. He didn't take on Chill Sonnen on a short notice for a reason. So John Jones would definitely suffer under that. I think Cyril Gan would as well. Kamar Usman just a little bit. I think Volkanovski would as well. Moreno a little bit. And Rose a little bit. Would Conor McGregor versus Josie Aldo be the same fight? I could see it being similar, but not the same fight. I can see Conor still knocking out Aldo because Aldo also fights on a game plan and McGregor knocked out Aldo with a similar thing he does to a lot of opponents. Would there be different champions? Not necessarily. I think most of them would be the same. I think without a game plan, the Gon would have a hard time with Francis Ngannou for sure. I think Usman has a better chance of beating Colby without game planning. I think Whitaker would have a harder time against Adesanya. Charles Oliveira is very good at improvising. I think Holloway might have a better chance of beating Volkanovski, so I think that would change. Piotr Jan doesn't need a game plan, really. Brandon Moreno would have a harder time with guys like Davidson Figueredo, and that's really it. I don't think anything else changes. The most dominant would be guys like Francis, right? Francis Agano doesn't need a game plan to knock everybody out. If they don't know how to fight him, right, if they don't develop a game plan to prepare for him, the power's too much. That's really what it's going to come down to. So guys like Francis Ngannou would really love no game planning. But the more methodical fighters, like a Volkanovski, like a John Jones, these guys will suffer the most. And then with Rashid Greaves, 
Hey Weasel, the current state of women's MMA seems as though it's coming to a standstill with all the divisions being cleared out except for strawweight. It's at the point where opponents are looking scared and wide-eyed while fighting the champions, for an example, Megan and Lauren. What can the UFC do to build interest and keep this interesting? Would it be worth it to buy over contracts from top female prospects and other promotions to get fresh blood? What can they do? That's honestly like the only thing. Just look at other talent. Don't give up on younger fighters rising up. That's just like the main thing. They gotta hope some young monsters come up and fight these dominant champions. Because you know what would be one of the worst things for women's MMA? If Amanda Nunes and Valentina Shevchenko retire without ever getting beaten. If they don't lose and they retire, that would destroy a lot of the interest in women's MMA outside of strawweight. Strawweight would be the only one that can survive that because of how competitive those fighters are with each other. If Nunes and Shevchenko retire, everybody's just going to look at the divisions like, who cares? They couldn't be Shevchenko and Nunes. They were so ahead of the pack. It wasn't like, they're competitive, but they're just better. No, they were so much better than everybody besides maybe like GDR. Like, it doesn't even matter who else comes up next. That's what would happen. So they just got to hope some young fighters come up. They can try their hand in some prospects and other promotions, but I don't think that's going to change much. The state of women's MMA right now is not in the greatest spot outside of Strawweight. Strawway. Strawway is doing fantastic. It's doing better than it's ever had. They went to Darce Bader. Your fight breakdowns are the most prompt and some of the most detailed on YouTube. Thank you so much, man. How much of these details do you get on your first watch? So you're talking about live? And how many times do you watch before you're making a breakdown? And are there any approaches to watching fights that you can share with the fans that could help us understand what's happening in a fight as we watch live? So what I will say is I get the generalities like a lot of the game planning, what they're trying to do in the fight, and the patterns on the fight when I watch it live. More of the details that I see out of like combinations and feints and small things, I get it after rewatching it one time. So pretty much I watch the fight twice and then I make the breakdown. You guys could probably tell I do it really quick for how fast I get these out, and that's honestly it. Like, just watch it twice. The first time I get the game plan, get the patterns down, and all that stuff. The second time I get the really small details, and then I just combine it. And what I do to watch fights to learn this stuff or understand it is, honestly, I don't do anything on purpose. Like, I don't look at anything on purpose. I just see them. Like, a fighter is doing something multiple times. I could kind of catch, okay, he did this again. Why is he doing this again? Wait, he did it again, and he drew this out instead of the other thing. Instead of throwing this punch, he threw this kick instead. He's trying to draw something out of the opponent by mixing up the targets, and maybe he's going to go back to that conditioning factor. Like, this is the kind of stuff that plays in my head when I watch a fight. If I see something happening multiple times, I think, oh, this is a game plan. This is something he's trained for. It could be just like merely footwork, right? It doesn't have to be some big strike or something. If I see them move in a similar pattern, it could be as little as possible. I notice those things. And I think it's just the way my brain works. I don't really look at anything specifically. I'm just like looking at it as an entertainment. And then I notice these things when it's happening. And there's nothing about like watching it alone or watching with friends. Like I, I see it all no matter what environment I'm in. I've been at sports bars and watched fights and I see the same stuff. I watch with my friends and we're all together and everyone's talking over the commentating I still see these things I watch it alone still see the same stuff so there's really nothing I can really tell you that I'm really looking for it just pops up and my brain just recognizes it okay but one thing I will say is sometimes I catch myself watching the feet of the fighters I do catch myself doing that a lot of times and no, it's not a foot fetish thing. When they're moving around and stuff in front of each other, I look at both their fighters' feet and my peripherals can catch strikes. I guess that's something I could kind of say. I don't do that all the time. I just notice myself doing that sometimes. I watch their feet. The peripherals can catch the strikes because you don't really have to look at the strikes to see what it is. You just got to look at how the feet are moving and how the body is positioning to know what strike is coming out there. So that's one thing I could probably say. But everything else, man, I don't know. <laughs> I wish I could help, but that's what the breakdowns are for. And then we go to Rabbit Man. With Zabit returning to the practically new top 10 featherweight division, except for the top 3 mostly, 
what fights would you like to see him return to? And how do you think he holds up against the top 10 now? Giga Shikadze. That's the fight. They could do that or Edson Barbosa if he needs a step down. But Giga is definitely the fight. I would love to see what Zeb beats right now. And in terms of him versus the top 10, so I think he beats Edson Barbosa. Wrestling's too much pressure. I think he beats Dan Ige. I think he beats Shikaze due to the wrestling. I think he beats Emmett. I think he beats Arnold Allen. That's a close fight though. I think he beats Kelvin Cater again, especially if he has the cardio after surgery. I think he beats Korean Zombie, but that's a very difficult fight for him. Definitely beats Yara Rodriguez. Wrestling's gonna be a bit too much. And the flashy strikes are not gonna catch Zeb beat. I think he definitely beats Brian Ortega. He's going to be hitting Ortega all over the place. The reach and the speed are going to be way too much for Ortega to get by. If Zabit has 5-round cardio, he beats Holloway. If he does not have 5-round cardio, Holloway probably smothers him and drowns him in the late rounds. Alexander Volkanovsky. I'm going to have to go with Volkanovsky. And then we're going to don't hate the flair, hate the game. What can Wilder do differently in his fight with Fury, and how do you see it going? He never fights different. What he did against Fury in both fights is what he's done in every fight he's ever had. He's not a guy that can really detour off of a game plan or like go into the fight with a different approach because he does the same thing all the time. Long jab, extends it, plants it on you right hand. Like that's pretty much it. He moves back right hand. Everything's going to come down to efficiency and precision and timing. That's it. That's all it's going to come down to. If he doesn't have that on point, he's going to lose again. I think Fury dominates him again. I think he's just too good for him. Walks him down, fights him as the bigger man, blocks the right hand, moves away from it, and just extends jabs and volume strike into his face the entire time. Catching big power shots again as Deontay Wilder shows the defenseless guard that he has. Do you have a girlfriend? No, I do not. I'm way too busy now for that. That's just a distraction at this point. And how would you see Habib doing at 170? He doesn't have the same weight advantage he did at 155, and welterweight has solid wrestlers. I think he does very well. In fact, he could still become the champion. There's a possibility he goes and beats Kamar Usman. I would favor Usman. I think that's the only guy around 155 that I think has the advantage against Habib in a fight. It is only Kamar Usman. He's bigger, he's stronger, he's more powerful. Habib might have a hard time taking him down, it depends. And Habib can be taken down as well. Now, on the ground, Habib is a better grappler. And he does have the judo against Kamaru Usman's wrestling to counter. So that's why I say there's a possibility Habib can beat Usman as well. If he gets Usman down and tries to snatch up a neck or an arm or something as quick as possible, that fight could be over. Then we're going to Saqib Shah. Which fighters have misleading records? Records that look bad but don't represent the fighter's abilities. Randy Couture is a main one. He has a really salty record. So he's 19-11, and 11, but he is regarded as one of the greatest fighters of all time because look who he lost to. He's fought the best fighters his entire career. Like literally his third professional fight was against Vitor Belfort. Then he fought Maurice Smith. Then he fought Ensign Inoue. He fought Jeremy Horn not too far later. Kevin Randleman. Tsuyoshi Kosaka. Pedro Munoz, Josh Barnett, Rico Rodriguez, Chuck Liddell, Tito Ortiz, Vitor Belfort twice, Chuck Liddell again. That was all literally right after each other. Then Chuck Liddell a little bit later, Tim Sylvia, Gabriel Gonzaga, Brock Lesnar, Big Nog, Brandon Vera, Mark Coleman, then later Leota Machida. Yes, a lot of these fights he lost in, but look who he fought. He's definitely the top guy when it comes to misleading records. There's Mark Hunt, who has a losing record, 13-14. and 14. But he has amazing wins against some of the best fighters in the world. But has also lost to some of the best fighters in the world as well. So those are two great examples for it. I'm going to skip the best jabber in each division because I covered that before. So then after that, Anthony Smith pretty much versus the top five of the light heavyweight division. He loses the Santos. Loses the Rock Hitch again. Loses the Prohaska. He could beat Tashira. But his cardio just probably doesn't allow it. So I will go with Tashira again. But I don't know if Tashira could take that punishment again. That's an iffy fight. And then definitely loses the Blahovich. 
and the thoughts on Leon calling out Jorge and then backing out. Yeah, that was one of the weirdest things I've ever seen in my life. He was calling this guy out for like what it seemed like years just for him to turn him down now. Just because Jorge lost his last two fights. I understand Leon wants a title shot, but it's him and Gilbert Burns in the running. I really don't blame Leon for turning down Jorge now, even though as weird as it looks. He should be looking at fighting Gilbert Burns and eliminating him or run the risk. Put his name in the hat for our title shot next. And then go to Jason Stevens. Which weight classes are the best in one area of fighting, such as boxing, kickboxing, BJJ, wrestling, or just kicking? I think 145 has the best kickers. Yeah, I agree as well. The best boxing has to go to lightweight. You have Conor McGregor, you got Justin Gage, you got Dustin Poirier, you got Charles Oliveira, you got Brad Riddell, you got Rafael Fiziev. Best kickboxing definitely goes to the featherweight division. When you got Volkanovski, you got Holloway, you got Giga Shikaze, Edson Barboza, Ilya Tapuria, etc. Best Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu also goes to the featherweight division. When you have guys like Brian Ortega, Kron Gracie, Bryce Mitchell, Billy Corintio, Ryan Hall. I mean, there is no division when it comes to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu like featherweight. Best wrestling, that one's up in the air a little bit between bantamweight and welterweight you would think that welterweight is definitely the best but when you really look at the division who are the great wrestlers you got Usman and Colby that's what stands out almost everybody else is a striker and it's probably a reason why now those two guys are definitely the best fighters in that division I mean Gilbert Burns also a good wrestler as well yeah that's why those three guys are the top of the division Usman, Colby, and Burns are the top of the welterweight division. They're literally champion one and two. And only them three have great wrestling. Jorge has good wrestling, I guess. But when you look at bantamweight, Aljamain Sterling has decent wrestling. Petriani has great wrestling. TJ Dillashaw, great wrestling. Marab, great wrestling. Cody has decent wrestling. Frankie has great wrestling. Dominic Cruz. So I won't say any of those guys are on the level of a Colby or Usman, but they have a lot of good wrestlers. Not just like three great wrestlers, but they got like seven good wrestlers. Wait, I'm overlooking Lightweight for some reason. Lightweight has a lot of great wrestlers. Charles Oliveira is a good wrestler. Dustin Poirier is a good wrestler. Justin Gage is a great wrestler. Benil Dariush is a good wrestler. Michael Chandler is a great wrestler. Islam Makhachev. Hafadol Anjos has good offensive wrestling. Gregor Gillespie, amazing wrestler. Diego Fajera is a decent wrestler. Armin Saryukian. Yeah, it actually might be Lightweight. Lightweight might have the best boxers and the best wrestlers in the UFC. And then just kicking, I have to go 145. Then we're going to side A. Hey, Weasel, how do you see Leon Edwards versus Jorge Maslow going down? Do you think Leon should be fighting for the title instead of another contender? Love your vids. They're on a different trajectory right now. Jorge's kind of going down. Leon is kind of rising. In a way, I mean, a lot of people look at that Nate Diaz fight like he lost it. But what I will say is Leon is definitely the more technical striker. And he will thwart any takedown Jorge attempts on him, in my opinion. He's a southpaw, and we've seen Jorge get dropped before by a southpaw. Darren Till able to get the outside foot advantage. And Jorge said he couldn't even see him move on the outside foot. He had to look at the replay to see how he did it. Hori also does not deal well with the 1-2 from an orthodox stanced opponent, and maybe Leon can switch into that and feint the jab, get that reaction from the parry left hook counter, and catch him with the right straight. But I think the majority of it would be Jorge trying to chase Leon a little bit, be a bit more aggressive against Leon, who's looking to counter Jorge for the majority of the fight. In that kind of style, and that kind of fight, I think Jorge definitely has a better chance of catching Leon. If Leon starts to pressure Jorge... Leon is definitely the advantage in that one. It just comes down to how does Leon engage this one. I think Leon has the tools to beat Jorge, in my opinion. And I think Leon should be fine Gilbert Burns. Then we go to the King Eze. What does Nunes have to do to become the GOAT regardless of gender? I mean, in a way, you can consider that. If you combine genders right now, Nunes is the greatest of all time. Just think about it. Like, all of her accomplishments, all the fighters that she beat in different weight classes, I don't think it's that debatable. I don't even think GSP or John Jones or Habib or anybody else can compare to Amanda Nunes. 
And then can Holloway take a punch from Derek Lewis? No, I don't think so. How far can the tough winners go in the UFC? I honestly don't think that far. Maybe top 15. I love Yuri, but I think Jan sleeps him in the first round because of his hands-down awkward movement style. What's your thoughts? I think the same thing. I think he gets countered. And also, Jan will take him to the ground. I recommend people watching Yuri's fights before the UFC. He has not shown the greatest wrestling. Like, he has been taken down multiple times in different fights. And Jan has good wrestling as well. So, not just the hands-down style of him getting caught coming in and Jan is so defensively sound. I think the wrestling also is going to do Yuri in. Jan might be one of the most difficult styles, one of the most difficult opponents for Yuri to fight. And then who wins in a street fight, Canelo or Figueredo? Uh, definitely go with Figueredo, for sure. And then we go to Theo Dixon. So this question is kind of similar, but also a little bit different at the end here. So after watching Volkanovski and Ortega, how do you think Zabit does at that level? I think Zabit is on that level as well. He possibly can. If he has the cardio, if he has five-round cardio, Zabit is on that level with Holloway and Volkanovski, in my opinion. If he doesn't, he's not on that level. Then we finally go to Joe Decker. Hey, Weasel, love the content, man. Keep it up. Do you think Surreal Gun has a chance of becoming the heavyweight champ and defending the belt multiple times? I think he beats Francis, and I think with how dynamic he is with his striking... I don't see any heavyweight beating him in the near future except maybe Jones, if he can take him down that is, and be offensive with his Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and not getting arrested for doing PEDs. Thanks Weasel, no problem man, I've been saying for a while, people used to make fun of me for saying this. Before he beat Derek Lewis, it's nothing against anybody, it's just for fun, you know, but a lot of people were commenting at me, I'm crazy to think Surreal Gun would beat Francis again. Remember when I was saying that I think that Surreal Gun would beat Francis? Before the Derek Lewis fight, people were calling me crazy for that. People were trying to flame me on Twitter for that. And now everybody agrees. Now they think it's crazy to think that Nganu beats Surreal Gone. There's people coming out on that side now. I'm finally glad I'm understood. But yes, I agree that he could become the heavyweight champ and defend his belt multiple times because outside of Francis and Stipe, you got to throw in Stipe with that wrestling. Nobody beats him. Tom Aspinall could probably show some interesting issues, but no, I don't see it. If John Jones comes up, that's a different thing. Because I don't know how he's going to show up at heavyweight. He might gas out. We have no idea. There's always a question with PEDs. It's hard to really know how John Jones will do at heavyweight. Especially against someone like Surreal Gun. But I do favor Surreal Gun to beat Francis. And I think a fight with him and Stipe is like 50-50. Outside of those two, nobody beats Gun. If he beats Francis and Stipe and he defends his belt enough times, he will go down as like the greatest heavyweight of all time. Those two guys that is coming up next, that's a hard road for him though. Francis is not going to be easy and Stipe is definitely not going to be easy. We could probably throw in one more question. We're going to go to Nico Repetto. Is there an argument that Volkanovski is currently the best active fighter in the UFC? I'm not saying that's what I think, but his win streak is longer than Usman's and Jones, and in my opinion, has beaten the better competition. Obviously, only having two title defenses doesn't help his case, but in my opinion, competition beaten is the most important factor when deciding who's the best fighter. Oh, and since Cejudo's called him out, who you see winning that fight? Thanks for the awesome content, Weasel. No problem, man. Yeah, I could definitely see the argument as well. I don't believe personally that Volkanovski is the best fighter. I think Usman might take it. Usman seems to be the most efficient fighter in the UFC, not the most skilled. Volkanovski, on the other hand, you can deem him as the most skilled champion right now. He could do it all. He could wrestle well. He has good Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, has good kickboxing, great boxing, good movement, high fight IQ, one of the smartest fighters in the UFC, and has really good attributes for his size. I mean, good power, good speed, all that stuff. So when you look at it that way, you can see that Volkanovski might be the best fighter right now. And yeah, his competition is legit. Max Holloway twice, Jose Aldo, Chad Mendez, Brian Ortega. I believe that's a higher level than what Usman has beaten so far. I don't really consider Jones an active fighter right now. It's hard to really say, you know, he's been on a bit of a hiatus. 
And who do I think wins between Cejudo and Volkanovski? I think Volkanovski would win by him not counting out Cejudo. You know what? One more. We're going to go to Harrison Garms. How do you think prime Conor McGregor does against the current top featherweights in Volkanovski, Max Holloway, Zabit, Giga, and Ortega? Love the videos, bro. We'll love these podcasts more often. Thank you so much, man. So going through this really quickly, I think he loses the Volkanovski, like I said before. I think he beats Max Holloway. He could do kind of what Dustin Poirier did against him but with more power and sharper punches. And combined actually what he did to Max Holloway the first time that they fought, just kind of disrupting the movements, disrupting the rhythm, constantly throwing shots at Max Holloway, not full power all the time, only full power when it's in an exchange. But everything else is kind of just disrupting what Max wants to do. Because you have to also remember, Conor McGregor in the featherweight division had better cardio than he did at 155. Conor versus Zabit? I'm going to have to go with Zabit in this one. I think he's defensively responsible enough to stay away from a lot of the left hands from Connor. I think the jab is going to cause Connor a lot of issues, the leg kicks and the takedowns. I think Connor has a little bit better of cardio, but I think he's also going to gas out after the third round, especially if he gets taken to the ground and held down. In that case, Connor will gas out before Zabit does. But at the end of it, it's a tough fight to score on a decision, but I think Zabit would win by a decision. Then Giga Shikadze. I got to go with Giga. He's a better striker than Connor overall. He's a much better kicker. His punches are extremely sharp as well. He can switch stances at a whim. He's longer than Connor. And we know that Connor doesn't deal as well against southpaws. So Giga taking the southpaw stance, he'll attack Connor with a lot of jabs, a lot of one twos, Connor left hands, and a lot of leg kicks. We're talking about one of the best kickers in the entire sport. That is a very bad fight for Connor. And then Ortega. I think Connor beats Ortega. He might be the one that can finish him. Ortega's defense is just not there. He'd be kind of a punching bag at times in front of a prime Conor McGregor at featherweight. And that's the end of the podcast, guys. I apologize if I couldn't get to all of them. There's so many questions. There's going to be a prediction video for this weekend, specifically the boxing fight. I cannot wait to watch Tyson Fury versus Deontay Wilder 3. And I'll see you guys in the next video.